carrying on from last week in our readings in 1 Corinthians, and today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body that I may boast but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that um, in in this passage uh, we would... See Jesus, hear his voice, and be transformed more into his likeness. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as um, Carlsberg would say, probably the best poem on love ever written. Maybe you had it for your wedding. It would be very understandable if you did. Except this is not an ode to romantic love. This is Paul in the midst of three chapters focusing on the use of spiritual gifts in Corinth, as you'll see from verses 1 to 3 and verses 8 to 10. The Corinthians thought spiritual gifts that they exhibited in their gatherings made them a prima donna church. But Paul says, Grow up. Earlier he'd said, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And here, verse 11, he speaks of when he was a child, and he's urging them to put childish ways behind them. And then in the next next chapter, chapter 14, verse 20, 
Um, he says, brothers, stop thinking like children. The Corinthians thought they'd arrived. They paraded their gifts as evidence. But Paul says, though these gifts are God-given, the way you are using them is not the way God intended. You're behaving like children. So um, this is our passage for today. We're in, we're, uh, 1 Corinthians divides very neatly into three paragraphs, all about the way love challenges the Corinthians. So verses 1 to 3, it's the way love challenges their spirituality. Verses 4 to 7, the way it challenges their behavior towards one another. And then the last paragraph on the way it challenges their presumed maturity. So first of all, we're going to be looking at um, verses 1 to 3. Um, the, way, the way love challenges their presumed spirituality. And Paul immediately lobs three hand grenades in there to try and explode their obsession with spiritual gifts. First of all, verse 1, he talks about the gifts they valued most, tongues. Uh, their claim to speak both many human languages and even the languages of angels. That may be, says Paul, but without love, you are only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And he's referring there to the sort of chaotic noise that was associated with the worst pagan cults that often led to orgies and criminality. Second, verse 2, he talks about the gifts that Paul may himself have valued most. He talks about them in the next chapter, gifts of knowledge and understanding, of communication, of leadership, gifts of faith that can make things happen. But if I am a mover and a shaker, a pioneer, a church planter, a recognized leader amongst the churches of London, but exercise that leadership without love, how am I different from the leaders we see in the world today? And they appear to have been the model for the Corinthians. Who earlier talked about we are kings. Thirdly, verse 3, he talks about the gifts that the church came to value most of all. The, the ones that appeared to imitate Christ most closely. Um, if, I give, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body, that I may boast, then I am nothing. Maybe you can think of um, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember uh, back in Acts chapter 5, I think it was, where people who were selling all their land and property and giving to the church to feed the poor were gaining a great reputation in the church. And Ananias and Sapphira thought, we want that sort of reputation. Or maybe think of Oregon, who grew to become one of the, the great um, African church leaders um, 100, 200 years later. Um, when he was a teenager, a young lad, um, it was a time when the 
martyrs of the church were the heroes of the church. And as a teenager, he thought, I want to be one of them. So he determined that next time the Roman authorities were rounding up Christians, he was going to be there with them. Uh, but his mother, hearing of this, hid his clothes. He was perfectly prepared to become a martyr for Christ, but he wasn't prepared to be become a martyr naked for Christ. But it's that sort of thing. His, his motives for it were wrong. I can sacrifice hours preparing sermons because I say I love the Lord and I love his word when really I love standing at the front and being listened to. People can sacrifice um, pleasures and enjoyment to engage in pastoral visitation both in the church and in the community largely because they love being needed by other people. Our tech team here can serve the church sacrificially behind the scenes but always be grumbling that they get taken for granted. I'm not suggesting that is true of you at all. I'm just saying that we can serve but our motives can be all wrong. Without love, whatever my ministry is, whatever my gifts are, I am nothing. Think um, of your present experience of church in lockdown. Why are you still zooming in at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? Why not log in to the best preachers on the internet or the best worship groups there are the answer is love. Love for the people God has brought you amongst. And the best people actually to minister to you are those who know you and who love you and serve you because they want the best for you. And when lockdown ends, will you be back in this building? Why? Because when God gathers people together in a locality, these are the people you are called to serve in love. Even though they may not be the easiest people to deal with or engage with. Even though they may not fully appreciate how wonderfully gifted you are. And that brings us to our second paragraph, um, verses 4 to 7. The challenge of love to the behavior of the Corinthians. For as this letter has shown us, they were impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, proud. And this paragraph is directed at them. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, and so on. Um, when I was a child, I go back a long way, the Beatles sang... All you need is love. Um, young people wore flowers in their hair, went on anti-war demonstrations, wore T-shirts saying, make love, not war, and sang about the dawning of a new age of peace. And it all seemed so easy. Throw off the establishment, let young people lead, and what a wonderful world we will have. Well, those young people became leaders, and they've left in their wake, numerous broken relationships and shown themselves to be just as prone to launching wars as previous generations. When 1 Corinthians 13 is read at weddings, it all seems so easy. 
Jordan loves Chantel. Chantel loves Jordan. They've got shared interests, similar goals, a sexual chemistry. But in the messy business of two selfish people living together, it is anything but easy. Which is why Paul needs to say, verses 4 to 6, what love is in terms of what love isn't. It is, does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, and so on. So this is not a dreamy poem for young people in love. This is a knife to lance the boil of human pride. Try putting your name in this paragraph and using it to announce the beauty of your character to your family in lockdown. Alan is patient. Alan is kind. Alan is not rude. Alan is not self-seeking. Um, what about when we get to church? Church is a wonderful idea. Different people from different backgrounds coming together in unity and love, serving one another, forgiving one another, giving the world a foretaste of what God has planned for the whole of creation. But in practice, once the enthusiasm has worn off, we often find our default position is to behave in exactly the same way as non-Christians do and gravitate to those who are like me and those who like me. It takes so much effort to love those who are not like me, who test my patience, tread on my toes, hurt my feelings. If Paul says love is patience, it's because he knows patience will be tested. If Paul says love is kind, it's because he knows you will get hurt and be tempted to respond with cruelty. If he says love does not envy, it's because he knows you will think at times that you are not being treated fairly. If he says love does not boast, it's because he knows you will be tempted to look down on others who aren't as clever, gifted, good-looking as you. If he says love does not delight in evil, it's because he knows how part of us loves to see other people mess up so that we can feel better about ourselves. And in these situations, to be patient and kind, to not envy or boast, to persevere in trusting that person, hoping the best for that person, supporting them, protecting them, will be to die to yourself, to die to your strong cravings, my strong cravings, for a life of comfort and ease and pleasure without interrupting interruptions of conflict and tension. But that is the call of Christ, to come follow me, says Jesus, to take up your cross, to die to self. That is the call of love. And if we are not prepared to do that, 
then the fellowship of the church will not flourish and divisions will creep in. So this paragraph, not an ode to romantic love, it's a knife that pierces the pride of the Corinthians and our pride too. Where do we go to see a love like this that dies to self in order to lift up others? Well, we go to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Substitute your name into this poem and it does not fit. And try it and people will laugh. But put the name of Jesus in this poem and it fits perfectly. So this ode to love is a portrait of Jesus Christ obediently, voluntarily, submissively going to the cross, turning the other cheek, praying for the forgiveness of those who persecute him. This is who we are called to be. So we read this and we have to confess, I am not like that. I am impatient. I am unkind. I am proud. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. But it also helps to me to remember I have a great Savior who has loved me and given himself for me, who has not got impatient with me, who has not abandoned me, but reached out and lifted me up again and again and again and is always hoping the best for me. So take these verses, put them into prayer, say, Lord, I am not like this, but you can make me clean. Help me to walk the way of love. Lord, I am yours. You have loved me. You have forgiven me, but I still find I am reluctant to pay the price of love. Help me to die to myself. Help me to become a channel of your grace and love to others. Some, of course, reading this might well ask, is it worth it, all this cost? Why don't I just retreat into the little world of my family and friends who, for some reason or other, are willing to put up with my selfishness? And the answer is because Love isn't your duty. Love is your destiny. And learning the way of love is the way you prepare for your future, the way you grow into it. So we're on to the third paragraph now, the challenge of love to our maturity. What future are you preparing for? What are you wanting to grow into? Is it one where the greatly gifted stand out and become men and women of fame and renown? Or is it one where the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is reflected in all who are his? 
In other words, what do you want to be? It's what we say to our children. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. What do you want to be when you grow up? Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. The Corinthians thought they'd arrived because they had the gifts of the age to come. But tongues and prophecy and knowledge are not the gifts of the age to come. They are transitory gifts for the present time, like weddings and funerals are, and doctors and lawyers. The true mark of the age to come, the mark that is so lacking in the Corinthians, is love. That is the one thing that will not pass away. Paul then uses two images that would be very pertinent for the Corinthians, which speak of this transition from the present to the future, all about growing to maturity. The first of all is very simply this one we've, we've often referred to, the one of a child growing to maturity. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. So Paul is in effect saying something like gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge are like the toys children in those days played with in preparation for adult life. So they had wooden swords or wooden dolls and bows and arrows, um, which were all dispensed with when they got onto real swords and real children. Um, and real weapons of war and so on. They're temporary, transitionary, whereas love is the mark of a fully mature human being, the, love, the mark of Jesus Christ, the true human being, the true image of God, and love will never pass away. Second image is that of a mirror. Corinth produced some of the best mirrors in the world at that time. But the mirrors were not glass. The mirrors were um, um, shiny um, bronze metal sheets. And the image in even the best mirrors of that time were nothing like seeing the person face to face. And he's saying something like the gifts of knowledge and prophecy and tongues help you to see a little bit of the face of Jesus Christ that you may grow into his likeness. So they have their place. But who wants great artists to paint pictures of Christ when you can actually see him face to face? And that is what we are looking forward to, says Paul. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 
because maybe hope always trusts. Hope always, sorry, love always trusts. Love always hopes. So, so 1 Corinthians 13 itself is a bit like a mirror um, and a rather uncomfortable mirror um, to look at because it shows you what you are really, really like. I don't know whether you're a person who loves looking in the mirror and admiring yourself or somebody who just cannot stand looking in the mirror because you see yourself. But this mirror shows us not just our, not our, our physical face, but it shows us our heart. It shows us what Jesus is like, and it shows us what we are like, but it also shows us what we are destined to grow up to be. So read, read the middle, middle paragraph after another tough day at work or another um, day of lockdown, conflict and tension at home. Um, and this may seem impossible. I can never achieve this. And yet, it's hard for me to imagine that Paul could have written this chapter to a church that he himself had founded, with whom he'd spent significant time, whom he knew inside out, and without knowing that they knew what he was really like. Unless this was true to some extent of Paul, how could he say to them, this is what you must grow into? All the way through this letter, you've, you've heard him say, follow me as I follow Christ. He is not, he's not there yet. He's not Christ-like in many ways. And some people would, might worry a bit about his sarcasm at times. But um, though he may rebuke them sternly at times, it was always in love. And I think they knew this. Read, read 2 Corinthians. I don't know whether you're going to go on to 2 Corinthians when you finish this letter. But um, in, this, uh, in 2 Corinthians, you will see just how difficult it was to engage with the Corinthians and yet how deeply Paul loved them, wept over them, served them, sacrificed himself for them, agonized over them. Then think of Paul's background and upbringing. How did this man, who had been raised in a culture of racial pride and bigotry, who had developed a misplaced zeal that had lashed out in violence against anyone who threatens Jewish superiority, how did he become the apostle of love, the apostle of 1 Corinthians 13. And the answer is, he had seen the love of God fully displayed in the face of the risen and crucified Messiah on the Damascus Road at just the time when Paul should have been crushed. He was loved, forgiven, rescued, 
and made into a great servant of the true Lord and Messiah. Paul had so experienced his amazing kindness and patience that he could never forget. He'd experienced overwhelming forgiveness and mercy and he'd begun to drink of that love that sees the best in people, that seeks the best for people and that never runs dry. And so Paul had determined with the help of the Holy Spirit to follow Christ in love. Shall we do the same? Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.